So we'll lay down some, uh, I guess, big picture trajectory stuff. Uh, if you've never been to discipleship class before, discipleship night, um, how this is all going to work together and flow, hopefully. And then we'll get into the content. So you should have a handout in front of you. If you do not have one of those, it's available to you. You don't have to take notes on that. It's just a resource or a reference for you uh, to... Yeah. So if you need them, see, I'm glad I mentioned that. Otherwise, yeah, that would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> you just had all the handouts. Um, it's the same content on all of them, so you don't need to collect multiple copies. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so you'll see that these are uh, kind of sectioned off into different headings uh, and different references. The idea is going to be at certain points we will take pauses and like little like Q&A breaks. Um, so if you see where the, the gray lines are at, that's roughly where we will try to pause and do some Q&A time. Um, there will be opportunities if you just have a burning question uh, and you just need to insert it somewhere in between there, uh, you can do that. Um, so I'll try to create those. And then we'll also take um, like periodic breaks. So like 20, 25 minutes, we'll try to do Q&A, let you get up, stretch your legs. Grab more pizza if you want. Try to try to go easy on the pizza because I would like to have some before this is all over. So, um, yeah. So with that being said, um, you can kind of see roughly where we're going to go content-wise. We'll just kind of walk through it together. And uh, before we get started, um, let me see. Tim, would you like to open us in prayer? Sure. Thank you, sir. discipline, but grow in the joy of um, knowing you more through prayer. I just ask that um, our hearts would be enlivened and directed towards your love in this, and that we would joyfully um, <coughs> desire to, to pray uh, more and, and more faithfully, and in a way that is, is glorifying you. Amen. Amen. Alright, so you guys can go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to 1 John chapter 5, and verse 14. I want to spend at least the first little bit of time framing what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. So tonight is on prayer, and the credit for this selection goes to Maddie um, for picking this verse. Uh, she insisted that we, we have one that kind of helps frame our discussion, and I think she chose very wisely. Um, so I'm going to try to uh, prove to you why we're, we're using this verse um, and how this really frames our discussion. but. Um, really, the, the origin and the source uh, material goes to Maddie on this one. So, thank you. Um, so, if you're there, uh, 1 John 5.14, I'll be reading um, out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. If you have a different one and you see differences, that's why. Uh, 1 John 5.14 says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I'm going to continue in verse 15. It says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So the frame for our conversation tonight on prayer is rooted and grounded not in strategy, not in our learning or our theology, 
not in our technique of prayer, but ultimately in who we are in Christ Jesus. So verse 14 tells us that the reason we can approach the throne with confidence, or the reason we can approach the throne is because we have confidence in approaching the throne. And if you were to ask the Apostle John why we have confidence in approaching the throne, it is because we have been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, we have the assurance to go to the Lord in prayer. If we do not have Christ, there is no confidence in approaching the throne. So everything we're going to talk about tonight in prayer, we're going to talk a lot about different theology, trying to formulate a theology of prayer from the Old and New Testament, trying to understand how the Lord taught us to pray. But the reality is that if you don't have Christ, you can't really pray in the way that Scripture commands you to pray. That's the reality, because Scripture's prayer is rooted on this idea of confidence. It says we must have confidence towards Him. And we don't have confidence on the basis of what we've done. We don't have confidence on the basis of our learning, our understanding of who God is. We have confidence because we have eternal life, as verse 13 tells us. The Son of God gives us eternal life. And so we have confidence. And so that confidence is out of which we pray. It says out of this confidence, we can ask anything according to his will. And he hears us. He hears us, that us referring to believers, not to just anybody. John is writing to a believing church. And in verse 15, again, it says, And if we know that he hears us, that's the key thing, that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. That's a pretty important thing to talk about on the front end. A lot of times we talk about prayer and we talk about, you know, answered prayers or unanswered prayers or things we are not sure about. Every prayer that has ever been prayed is an answered prayer. Every prayer has always been answered. When we refer to unanswered prayers, typically we're referring to prayers that we're not sure how they were answered or when they will be answered. But in the eyes of God, every single prayer prayed by believers is answered. That's what verse 15 tells us. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We have secured them because of Jesus Christ. So out of that framing of prayer, framing it in the light of the gospel, um, we can maybe try to put together a little bit of a definition of prayer. Now, you'll see that on the sheet, this is where there's a gray line. And so I'm interested to know, if you guys were to try to define prayer, how would you try to define it? If you were to try to put it together, you can use scripture if you want, you can come up with one. How would you try to define prayer? You can just shout it out if you want to go for it. A wartime walkie-talkie. It's a very visual picture. I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. What are some other ones? How else would we try to define prayer? Don't be shy. We're going to try to piece it all together. So we're going to try to do this on the front end, get it messy, and then we'll try to clean it up as we move through our time. So don't be afraid to be wrong. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. Okay. Yes, the, the good old acts. If you've grown up in or around church folk, you've heard that for sure. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Prayer is then broken down into its component parts, if you will. What else have you heard about prayer? We're trying to come up with a definition right now. We can always go back and edit, by the way.
If you had an unbelieving friend and they ask you, what is prayer? How are you going to respond to them? Okay. Talking with God. There you go. Yeah. Talking with God. So wartime walkie-talkie, the component parts, talking with God. <clears throat> Any others that come to mind when you think of prayer? Any other things that? Pouring your heart out before the Lord. Yeah, pouring your heart out before the Lord. Letting him know what sucks and what's going well. Yeah, talking with him, conversing with him. Those are all good definitions of prayer. Now suppose uh, that same friend, uh, if they were to ask you, what is prayer? How would you put it together? Suppose that same exact person um, asks you, well, how do we know that about prayer? What are you going to refer to next? If it's, well, my church friend told me so, or I just grew up hearing that, uh, you're going to be in a world of hurt to try to explain that to somebody. So what we're going to try to do tonight is not just have definitions, but definitions with lots of structural support. And then with that structural support, we might try to inform how we walk away with a definition. That doesn't mean, by the way, if this is going to frustrate you, I'm sorry. That doesn't mean we're going to all come up together with this perfect, beautiful definition of prayer. And then we're just going to walk out of here with a ticket in hand, ready to go. Um, you're going to have to come up with that on your own. But we're going to put some scriptural support in and we'll try to brainstorm together how we would piece that together. The reason we're talking about why we define prayer, how we define prayer, is because how you define it matters quite a bit as to what you think is happening. If you think something's happening that's not undergirded by scripture, that's a kind of prayer that you've invented in your mind or it's been invented by your tradition. It's not reflective of what God teaches us in his word. So with that being said, uh, you can keep that question, how would you define prayer? How would we define prayer open? And as we move through basically the rest of our time together, you can go and kind of add to that. And we're kind of, kind of be framing things in that context. So let's start building a definition of prayer from scripture. And I have given you a highly edited list of texts that we are going to look at. And if others come to mind that you know of, we can bring that up during some more discussion time after this. But the first one that you'll see there is Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 23. And we're going to try to form a biblical theology of prayer. And what that means, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with biblical theology, um, is it's, it's kind of like systematic theology, except its uh, intent is not to be as clean. <clears throat> its intent is to be defined and using the vocabulary of scripture. So we're going to, as we move through these texts, we're going to try to pull up some observations, pull up some common ideas and see if those get repeated, see if they're only mentioned one time. And in, in the uh, conglomeration of all these Old Testament texts, we're going to see how did the Old Testament canon discuss prayer? How did it think or conceive of prayer in the minds of its authors? And then we'll do the same thing with the New Testament and then we'll kind of move on from there. So Genesis 18, 22 through 33 reads as follows. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, I will, or sorry, he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as well as the wicked. Far be it from you, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if there are 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and he said, suppose 40 are there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. The Lord says, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned then to his place. So we can ask some questions about this text. What does it tell us about prayer? Um, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things going on in this text. There's a lot of moving parts. What's happened right before this event takes place is Abraham, God has had a visitation, visitation towards Abraham. He's shown up to him. And he has uh, a few agendas on his list while he's, you know, walking along the earth with Abraham. One of those things that after he visits Abraham, he's going to go to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's going to take care of the sin that is found in those cities. And before this conversation takes place, God decides that he's going to let Abraham know what he's to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he sends his angels away to go to the city and to go ahead and start that process, Abraham takes to the side with God and he goes and begins to intercede for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't know why he's interceding, it's because one of his family members is there. Lot has chosen that part of the world for his cultivation and for his rule. And Lot is living in this city, Lot and his household. And so when Abraham is referring to the righteous in the city, he's trying to include Lot in that mix of people. Now we can obviously begin to ask questions about what does it mean for him to say there's a righteous person there? Does God, are there righteous people in the city at all? But I want to focus this a little bit more narrowly and ask the question, does Abraham change God's mind when he prays. Remember, we're forming a biblical theology of prayer. Part of what we said earlier is talking with God is part of what it means to pray. But if we think about talking with God as what it means to pray, we might misconceive and think that we talk to God as we talk to other people. And if you're persuasive enough when you're talking to somebody else, you can change their mind. You can change the outcome of conversation. You can change the events that are about to unfold after this. You can perhaps persuade someone to get a different kind of job, enter into or out of a relationship. You can do a whole lot of things in conversation with people that you could not do when you're talking with God. So Abraham indeed does talk to God in this passage. He talks to Yahweh, the Lord over all creation. And in this conversation, he's interceding for the city. But what you'll notice is he doesn't change God's mind. If you were to read later on in this text of scripture, God does exactly what he said he was going to do. He does destroy the city. He rescues Lot and his family out of the city but he does still destroy the city. So he indeed does not destroy the city when there are righteous people in it. Indeed, he rescues Lot out and then continues with his destruction. So Abraham doesn't change God's mind, but nevertheless, Abraham does go into this conversation and God is not displeased with Abraham for doing that. 
You can notice that in the text, God is actually willing to engage in this kind of conversation with Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of the rest of the Jewish nation. And so when God uh, is interacting with Abraham, he doesn't get frustrated with him as he will later with the Israelites when they begin to grumble and complain and do things like that. So what Abraham is doing here is in very many respects a positive kind of thing. So as we're forming a biblical theology of prayer, we're going to try to pull out the, the big picture ideas, right? The first thing is that prayer is indeed conversing with God. It's talking with him, right? Abraham talks to God. There's this back and forth answer, uh, ask and answer, almost like a, a bartering going on. You see that Abraham draws near to God in order to pray with him. That's going to become important later when we ask the question, what does it mean to draw near to God when he's not physically on this earth? But we see that prayer is partially drawing near to God, partially conversing with him. You see that Abraham, when he prays to God and when he's conversing with him, does not ground his prayer on who he is or who the righteous people are. He doesn't ground his prayer on things that he wants God to do. You'll notice the grounding for the prayer, I don't know if you caught it, is located in the middle of that second or that first body of passages, uh, first body of text, it's in verse 25. Abraham says, far be that from you, when he's debating with God, when he's bartering with him, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Abraham roots his conversation with God, not in who he is, not in who uh, the people of the city are, he admits that they're unrighteous. What he says, though, is that God is a just judge. He roots it in God's character. If God was not a just judge, we can assume that Abraham wouldn't have gone on to begin to have this kind of debate with God and this kind of interaction. His whole foundation for conversing with God is that God is a just judge. God is a righteous judge, and so he can do no wrong. And so when Abraham prays to him, he brings that to bear. He brings a characteristic of God to bear, part of his nature, and he uses that as a foundation through which he prays. You'll notice uh, one last piece of this is that Abraham, when he's praying to God, he is interceding not for himself, but for others. And that's going to become a pretty vital picture. And something I want you to keep your eye on is who do people pray for when they do pray in scripture? You're going to find a very rare selection of times when people pray for themselves. The vast majority of prayers found in scripture are on behalf of others. And so we can draw all of those things out just from one cross-reference in an Old Testament text buried in the book of Genesis. And we haven't even gotten to the word prayer yet. Abraham is conversing with God, but you'll see in this text, nowhere is there a language of pray or prayer. But we're left to understand that that's what's going on because of the conversation nature of it. The next highly edited list of texts, again, if you were to kind of Google prayer into your uh, uh, a Bible software or you were to try to look up the theme of prayer in scripture, you're going to find a lot of texts before this and a lot of texts after this before the next one we get to. But I'm skipping over a lot of stuff for the sake of time and to try to highlight ideas. So the next one I want you to go to is the next one listed there. It's Exodus 32, 31. Some of you might be familiar with the context that this story takes place in. For the sake of brevity, 
I will summarize it uh, in these terms. God has led his people out of slavery. He's given them a set of commands to obey. While he's giving those commands to obey, the people decide that they do not like God anymore, and they're going to worship a God of their own invention and call him Yahweh. And when that happens, God gets very angry with the people, and this is the account of the golden calf. And God, uh, Moses gets so angry that he breaks the, the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the two stones that he's given. And then you see this very interesting interaction take place at the end of this series of events in verse 31 of Exodus 32. The next day, Moses uh, says to the people, I'll start in verse 30 just for context. You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to a place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So you have uh, in this short account, uh, much, uh, you could read the whole passage and you'd get a much deeper flavor of what's going on here. But Moses, even despite Israel's sin, as their prophet, as their leader, intercedes on their behalf. So Israel has sinned a great sin. They, everyone's freely acknowledging that. He says it to the people and then he says it to God, admitting that these people are sinful. But what you'll notice on the front end, before he even goes to God, he says, perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Now, it's notable about this fact is this happens before the Levitical priesthood is established, before the sacrificial system is established. The only thing they have to go off of at this point is the Passover lamb picture. And there's an assumption on Moses' part that this atonement is something that has happened, that it's something that effectually happens for the people, but there's also an assumption that God, within his character, has the ability to atone not just for one-time sins, but almost for an ongoing amount of sins. And you'll notice that because he says, perhaps I can make an atonement for this sin as well for the people. And he's not presuming that out of thin air. He's presuming that on the basis of God's character. He's presuming it on the basis of who God is and who God has revealed himself to be. So far, God has led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's led them through the Red Sea. He's fed them by the hand with manna. And all of these things bring to light the fact that Moses is convinced that this God is the kind of God who is forgiving. And so he goes to God and he says, I admit that this people has sinned, but nevertheless, maybe you will forgive their sin. But now if you will forgive their sin, he says, knowing that it is within God's ability and God's prerogative to do so. And again, if we step back and we ask big picture questions, You'll notice the word prayer, once again, not mentioned in this section of verses that we just looked at. You'll notice again, the intercession happens not for God's, uh, not for Moses himself when he prays, but for the people of God. So Moses is praying on behalf of yet another group of people, just like Abraham prays on behalf of another group of people. These are both examples of what we would call intercessory prayer, both the Abraham account and this one, where people are interceding on behalf of others. You'll also notice another big factor, which is it's not because of the people's good works that God is going to forgive them. In fact, at the front end of him pleading with God, he says, by the way, just so you know, they don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve 
your forgiveness. They don't deserve your mercy. And he doesn't even assume that God will forgive them. He says, perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. He doesn't say that God must do it because these are God's people, but he's going to plead with God. So you can almost see a kind of posture. He hopes that God will do it. He's almost sure of it, but he doesn't say God must forgive the people. And that's going to become important because he's submitting his prayer to the will of God. He's leaving the final decision up to God. And that models for us, I think, a way in which we can approach God in prayer as well. You'll notice another piece of this picture, which is that it's right after they sin that Moses goes and intercedes for them. It's the next day. So they don't wait for their consciences to be happy again or for their uh, memories to fade of the event before they once again feel comfortable going to God. Rather, they ask Moses to pray on their behalf and they intercede as soon as they are able to do so for themselves. Well, they don't intercede for themselves. Moses does. But he's the leader, the representative head of this people that has now sinned. And Moses does so at the next available opportunity, praying to God. And so there's a timeline kind of thing that happens there as well. Uh, when you're praying for forgiveness, or you're praying a confession kind of prayer, there's something to be learned there, something to be observed. And we'll kind of try to put this all together later. Another famous prayer uh, you can look at and turn to is 1 Samuel. And it's in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. This one will uh, kind of come at this from a different angle. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm going to uh, just read starting in verse 9 of the text. But before this, we find out that the woman who prays here is barren, meaning she cannot have any children. And she goes to God, and you'll notice that she prays. In verse 9 it says, And they had eaten, and they had drunk in Shiloh. And Hannah rose. And now Eli the priest was sitting in the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 12, and as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. And therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And he said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. You'll notice in this uh, series of interactions between Eli, Hannah, and then uh, obviously God is present there as well as she prays to him. You'll notice something absent that we've seen previously in all the two previous accounts there's a verbal conversation out loud happening between the person and God. In this account of the prayer, you'll notice explicitly in the text, there's a reference to the fact that she is not talking. In fact, it says she, her lips are moving, but she's not saying anything. And she's speaking 
in her heart. And when you ask the question, why does she speak in her heart? Why does she change the pattern up? You'll notice she's in a different kind of situation than Moses and Abraham were. She is speaking out of a place of pain and anxiety rather than out of a place of confidence. So Moses and Abraham speak out of a place where they're not personally afflicted in the way that Hannah is. And so when she prays, her kind of prayer posture models her state in life, her condition. It says she, she just pours out her soul. She speaks out of her great anxiety and vexation. And all of these things are directed, as it were, to God. And that's important because what you see here is, again, a picture of the fact that you don't have to be clean. You don't have to have everything theologically put together before you go to the Lord in prayer. She prays out of her anxiety and out of her vexation. She doesn't have all the answers yet, and yet she finds comfort to pray. She's deeply distressed when she prays to the Lord. She doesn't say any verbal words out loud, and yet she prays. And all of these things together allow us to understand a picture of what prayer is like that the other two accounts don't give us a good picture of. She prays out of a place of pain. And prayer in this way is a way for her to process that kind of pain. Now, this is important to note. Nowhere in this text does it say she feels comfortable processing it without God being there. Okay? I think there's a good modern idea of prayer that tells us that as long as we pray, whatever we're praying to or however long we pray, that that is just a good processing kind of mechanism for our problems. But in scripture, she goes away no longer sad, not because she's prayed, not because she's done it, but because Eli gives her an assurance that God has heard her prayers that he, she has made to him. That's what causes her to leave joyful. Not because she's processed it out loud. She processed it out loud probably with her husband for this moment. The processing is not what fixed the problem. The fact that God heard her is what fixes the problem. And you'll notice, before God answers the prayer, just by the fact that God has heard the prayer, before he answers it, she leaves no longer sad. So her mood changes not because of the answer to the prayer, but because of the fact that God has heard her prayer. And those are important things for us to note because she moves from a place of pain to a place of joy just because of the simple fact that she's experienced the presence of God. She's communed with God and that is enough for her to move from a place of pain to a place of joy. All right. We'll try to get through this top list and then we'll take a break for questions if we need to. Second uh, Samuel 7, uh, 24 and 27. This one is uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, so we'll just make some quick observations off of it. In Second Samuel 7, uh, 24 through 27, there's this amazing uh, line that David says. And he's uh, talking with God. This is after his throne has been established, after God has made a promise to him. In verse 24, he says, And you, referring to God, establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Verse 25, And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. Now he's referring to himself. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. Verse 27, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of, he of Israel, has made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Notice what David says. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. You'll notice something similar between David's prayer and Abraham's prayer and Moses' prayer. 
is that the root of the prayer is the fact that God has said he's a certain kind of way. And that confidence of who God is and what he said he's going to do is the very reason why David prays. You'll notice the prayer on the front end of that is, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken. And on the back end, he says the reason he feels confidence to pray that is because God has said, I will build you a house. It's because of the promise of God that David feels the courage or the confidence to go, therefore, and pray. And I think that's another important understanding we talked about in the Abraham account. You can't change God's mind when you pray. The thing we notice here is not only can you not change God's mind when you pray, but also that the very reason that you go to prayer in the first place is because God has said he's going to do it. And I think if we have a bad view of God's sovereignty, we'll say God said he was going to do it, therefore nothing left to me. But David doesn't view it that way. He sees the confidence of what God is going to do as the very reason why which he goes to God in prayer. So you'll see that out of that 2 Samuel text. The next one uh, is Proverbs 30. Proverbs is filled with lots of good prayers, lots of good wisdom writing. But in Proverbs 30, you'll get something that we're going to see later in the New Testament. I just want to point it out to you briefly here. You'll notice in verse 7 of Proverbs 30. So it's Proverbs 30 verse 8. But I'm, in verse 7 he says he's asking things of God. So this is a prayer. And he says, verse 8, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You'll notice the person who writes this proverb says something startlingly similar to something you might be familiar with in the New Testament, which is in the Lord's Prayer where he says, Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. Those two pieces of the Lord's Prayer are echoed here in this proverb where he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me the things that I need. Give, what's, give me what's needful for me. Lest, if I have too much or too little, I profane your name either way. By denying you or by being so poor I'm tempted to steal. He says, guard me by giving me what's needful for me so that I can live a life that is glorifying to you. And you'll notice that same kind of language is used in the Lord's Prayer. And when we get to the Lord's Prayer, we'll kind of reflect back on this account earlier in the text as well. And the last prayer I want to look at uh, before we open up some Q&A time is Nehemiah 1. And the, the prayer account is really all of chapter 1. But you notice, uh, just like Hannah's prayer is out of a place of pain, out of a place of mourning, out of a place of brokenness, she's lamenting what's happening in her life. You'll notice Nehemiah's prayer follows that same kind of pattern. The reason I point this out is because I don't want you to think that the only example of a female praying in the Old Testament is one where it's painful and no men do that. If you look at the Psalms or get to there, you'll see David does the same thing. But Nehemiah does it as well, leader of the people. He says in verse 3 of this text, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Jerusalem, the city of God, is in a bad spot. And Nehemiah works in a very safe location where he's at. He's cupbearer to the king, which means he has a pretty good life. Despite that, because God's people are in a broken place, you'll see the response in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And this is what he says. 
O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And the first thing he starts off with in this prayer is confession. Confessing the sins of, people, of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And obviously that man is the king who he's going to petition. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, you'll see where that prayer petition leads to. But it's important we note a few things. One, out of a place of brokenness, Nehemiah prays. In fact, that's his first response. He weeps, he mourns, and within that time, he says he continued fasting and praying, which implies that he was already doing the fasting and praying earlier in the morning process as well. He says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And when he starts off his prayer, you'll notice he starts it in the same way Abraham started his prayer off, in the same way Moses starts his prayer off, by praying on the basis of God's promises and his character. He says, the God of heaven the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, the great and awesome God who has steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. So the reason he prays, the reason he prays as he does is because he's going to God who keeps covenants and God who has steadfast love for his broken people. This is the reason Nehemiah prays. This is the reason he has confidence to go in prayer before God. And it's important because Nehemiah sees God's covenant, sees his statutes as a ground and a foundation for prayer. I don't know how many of you have ever read the first five books of the Bible and thought this is a great root and foundation for how I pray. Nevertheless, Nehemiah, reflecting on the law of Moses, says that this is a ground and foundation for prayer. That's important for us to note as we move into the New Testament because what I want you to understand by moving through these Old Testament texts is not that the New Testament and Old Testament are in disagreement on prayer, or that the New Testament somehow is a more rich theology of prayer. But what the New Testament does, really, it summarizes lots of teaching that's in the Old Testament. There's nothing new in the New Testament in regards to theology of prayer. All it is is summarized and made bite-sized for us, but it's not new. In fact, we've seen all of the elements thus far that you're going to see later in the Lord's Prayer and in the prayers of Paul. You've already seen them thus far in these texts. And we haven't even gotten to the Psalms yet, which is literally an entire book of prayer. <clears throat> 